are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Um, I'm Drew. I'm from a company called Crystal. So we've got like a personality data platform. Um, been around for a little while. But uh, for this talk, I, <laughs> um, it's kind of funny how the, I guess when, you do, when you're in a startup slash like kind of bootstrap mindset growing over time, how like the just, you realize, wow, I've just interacted with a lot of people at my company. Um, and I reached that point, and this talk emerged out of an email that I wrote to a found, another founder who was in this position where he just felt like, especially this was kind of like during the bull market when it just felt like every software engineer was asking for like a quarter million dollars. He's like, how am I supposed to do this? Like, I don't have the money to, to pay the people. Like, I need to figure out how to get them at my company. Um, so this, this, I, I wrote like a very long email that ultimately I turned into like my own little personal note. And there's a lot of ideas that emerged. So this is just like a talk with a lot of these ideas that I've refined and implemented over the last like five-ish years. Um, and I can get something out of it. So first of all, there's like, when you're running a company as a founder or as an executive, the thing they don't tell you about is just how emotional it is, like he, like he was just saying in the talk. Um, so I want to ask about like, there's three heartbreaks, that I, three types of heartbreaks I can think of. So who in the room has lost someone they really wanted to hire and then they chose a different job for another reason? All right, it's a couple. And was, that, was it ever because of money? Like, better offer? Yeah, it's always like, all right. Um, what about someone that unexpectedly quit and you, didn't ex- you didn't, really didn't want them to? Anybody? Okay. And then, <laughs> and then, someone, and then someone you had to let go, mostly because either you, not necessarily strictly because of, like, performance reasons, but... Basically, has anybody had to do layoffs before because they got over their skis? Okay, got it. All right, so people in the room have felt this pain. Um, I should have asked this. How do I, what's the, uh, the button? Yeah, got it. Oh, the, the middle button. Green. I swear I'm a tech guy, right? <laughs> all right, first, first of all, I have one of my employees in the room. Did everyone sign the non-solicit as well, just in case? No? <laughs> Nobody recruit Neil. <laughs> He's making plenty of money. <laughs> okay. Um, no, but th- this, talk, this talk is uh, mostly for people who are trying to pay their, pay their people well, but have encountered that pain point. And, um, and that pain point I kind of loosely describe as you are operating with far less resources than your better funded competitors. Therefore, you need to give people a reason to come to your company that is not all about the offer, not all about the financial package. Um, so... There's a couple of points in here that I'll kind of get into, but largely I kind of stick with this idea that I want employees to stick around my company twice the amount of like the average startup tenure, which tends to be around like 1.82 years, depending on how you measure it. Um, that's, my, that's my goal of measure of success. Um, so I'm going to go into a couple of these parts, share some stories, share a couple of like the hard lessons and mistakes that I have learned over the last few years in hopes that maybe you can pull from that. 
And then a, a couple of the uh, specific things that I go to in interviews and policies that I've implemented at Crystal, some of which are pretty new, some of which have been for a while, um, that are kind of like, I think, working. Um, because we, 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 have a, we have a pretty strong culture now, and, and I've, the way I've talked to people about why they work at my company, now we can pay people like more, much more competitively than we were earlier on. So it's not as much of a, a struggle to like be able to get someone a compelling offer, but it's still, you know, working at a startup is, is, or an early stage company of any kind is a higher risk, so you need to package, you need to put together something that's compelling to them. So I'm going to go into a couple of these strategies. So 2023, we're not in 2021, so money is not flowing abundantly. We're not in zero interest rate environment where everybody, every company can fund themselves. So startups all of a sudden became more risky again, kind of like they used to. They actually carry real career risk because everybody sees, oh yeah, X company did 20% layoffs and is your company going to do the same? So startups kind of carry, in my view, carry the risk they should because startups are inherently volatile. And that means that I think this problem is going to get more acute as top performers also experience risk aversion and they also are going to look at, all right, what are my options in these safer environments? Um, so as a founder, there's no real alternative to having A players because you're fighting against inertia. You're, you're building something from nothing. It is very hard to do that, especially when you're trying to grow quicker than would be natural. So you, you just need those kind of top performers. And now those top performers are experiencing the same types of you know, economic stresses that a company is. So they're looking, you know, just, just as starters, uh, just as founders are looking for um, ways to be more secure with their future, as are these people. So I think this is going to become an, a more acute problem. It's like, how do I actually convince these people to join my company, knowing that they might have to take a salary cut, knowing that they're probably definitely taking more risk with their career? Um, and here's the unfortunate truth. Something I learned as an introverted software engineer that did not like sales, did not like recruiting, did not like all those people-oriented parts of my job. Whether you like it or not, you as a founder um, are the most effective recruiter for your company. We were, just, we were just talking the other day, and this is kind of in business development, just reaching out to a prospect or a customer with knowing that you're the founder or the CEO or senior executive. Like, that carries weight that you can't get, you, you can't just, you can't say, nah, I'll just pass that off. If you're not doing the recruiting and doing founder-led recruiting, you're actually, I, I think, really hurting the company. Um, so it's always really surprising when I get on the phone with some, like, uh, I, I do a lot of phone screenings just to talk to people and have that first conversation. Some would say it might be a waste of time, but I don't think it's a waste of time. They're always kind of shocked, like, wait, the CEO, you're talking to me? It's like, yeah, <laughs> tell, me, tell me about this, like, jazz band you got on your resume here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and in that process, I think one of the reasons that founders shy away from those parts of their job is because it is so emotional. And I want to say, like, <laughs> I already asked a little bit, so it seems like some of us have had, like, the ones that got away in the business sense. I'll share a couple of, the, like, those from me that, are, like, stick for me. So this particular one was a, um, I was trying to hire very early on, this is 2015, I needed a new engineering leader, and this guy, I was, I had, like, the hugest developer crush on him. He was like the, he, he just had this amazing GitHub. He was right in, he was right in Nashville where I live. We met like three times. We're like, he, so on the vision. Got really far in the process. He accepted my offer. And then ultimately his old company, 
he sent this email and was like, hey, you know, I was really not, not in the best spots with that. Basically, they offered me more money and now they've convinced me otherwise and now I can come back. That, that one hurt. That one really stung. Here was one where oh, this was a, this was a uh, product leader who, yeah, you can see, basically, my decision ultimately came from working at a company that was larger and much more well-established, which mitigates some of the risk for myself and my family during these uncertain times. I'm like, I wish I could say something enough, but you're kind of right. <laughs> um, really wanted that, really wanted that one. Um, you know, we'll stay in touch, blah, blah. Haven't talked to him since, of course. But <laughs> yeah, this was, a, this, was a more recent, this was a more recent one. Um, this was a, this a job applicant. We got really far into the process. And this is why I wanted to include this one because it's not like this doesn't happen to us now, because this, this was just last month. And um, I think in evidence of the, the economic climate, this was another case. Um, and I dug in a little bit more because I talked to him after. This is another risk aversion thing. You're a small company. I had this huge offer from this big company. Salary was slightly higher. I, we, we're going to, you know, I'm going to go with this. So I think it's, it's, this is going to come into play more and more, that whole risk aversion thing. Um, so every one of these, though, has a, has a lesson, like whether that's a, one that got away or someone unexpectedly quitting. And I've experienced those, like, multiple of those heartbreaks for like eight years doing my current company. But I've also gotten, I think, better at not just the front end of it, the recruiting part of it, but building real policies at our company that, had, that I now share in the interview process and actually really helps. Um, and I think it's also helping retain, it's really helping retain people for the long term. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to say, like, hey, this is all I think I got to write. Our company's still pretty small. Um, so, granted, this is a lot of ideas that are stolen. One of, the, one of the ideas, actually, a lot of these ideas I stole from this book. I'm not sure if any, has anyone read this, read this book before? It's really good. I'd recommend it. Um, it's by Reed Hoffman and uh, Ben Kasnocha. I don't know how to say it. But he, uh, he outlines a whole philosophy of hiring and talent management. Some of the ideas like, I've taken, some of them I haven't, but it's just a really, really good read. So a lot of my ideas kind of stole from that. I also stole some ideas from my dad. <laughs> he's a carpenter, and he always, he's got this like really thick Long Island accent. So he's got these like, you know, one-liners. One of the one-liners, I used to work with him when I was a teenager, and he has his guys. Like, my dad's, my dad's best friends, I never knew their last names. I just know Ray the plumber, Bob the electrician, you know, Dave the lumber guy. Like, that's, that's who they are. And he always told me, you treat you guys good, they treat you good. <laughs> so I was going to make fun of my dad. He's got his, like, army of guys who just, like, been working alongside him for that forever. So take a lot of inspiration from that. Um, so I've got like five principles. I'm not sure if I'll get to all of them. I tend to like randomly go on a couple of tangents. But the first principle is that I found that the people who, especially the ones who are kind of tossing around between a big offer at a big company that feels safer and your startup, they're actually attracted to the challenge. So I try to lead with that. And there's this really famous um, Ernest Shackleton quote about like he was going to Antarctica and put this ad out in the paper. I try to use that approach in my interview process in the very first time. So I say like these three things to make it really clear. Like, hey, I'm going to kind of lead with, lead with the hard and just see what happens. So first of all, I like will speak in longer terms than they're probably ready for. I'll say like, hey, I just want to be clear with you. I'm like recruiting you for the long term. I want, I'm trying to build my team that I build many companies with together. I talked to Neil about this, and that's part of like what 
the expectation is that I don't know how long Crystal's going to last. We're gonna, we could succeed, be huge. We could fail. doesn't matter. I'm recruiting you now because I want to work with you for a very long time. And that's like, if, if we share that, let's continue this conversation. If not, maybe it's not the right fit. Um, and I want us to both to sign up for a four-year commitment to each other. Not legally binding. I mean, you get a little bit into this, but setting the expectation that this is, this is kind of the time frame that mutually probably works best for us, and then let's revisit. And then I really am up front like, hey, this is actually probably going to be harder and more ambiguous, and you're going to make less cash up front than your other opportunities. And most of, I think most of our, especially our senior people, I've had this conversation with, and it's made them more excited about joining the company, because I think in their mind it clarifies why they're doing it too. Um, and and it, also, it also helps filter through the actual other most important parts of the job. Um, so that's in the interview. Now that four-year thing, this is something I stole directly from the Alliance, that book. And I've implemented it at Crystal, and um, I think it, it, it has... It has helped people just think with a more structure about their tenure of employment. Um, so it's still, still like we haven't had many people go through this whole process, but um, it's been pretty cool to see just the effect that the policy itself has. So we, very upfront that we want to do a four-year kind of, not a promise legally, but a four-year commitment to each other. Like we're gonna, the company's going to invest in your growth, and you're going to invest in the company's growth. This is a mutually beneficial thing. And if something is not working along those lines, we don't hold it back and then, you know, just send you a breakup text one day. Like, hey, we need to talk. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vocalizing of the issue and giving the other a chance to fix it, whether it's from the employee to the company or the company to the employee. Um, and then there's actual real teeth to it. So, like, at the, the big thing is after four years, um, there's a one-month sabbatical, a paid sabbatical with, like, a $2,500 uh, travel stipend. And that's not just a perk. It's also because we want to give you a reset and allow you to, like, all right, let's think about the next stage. And at that point, you have an official meeting where you can determine, okay, is it time to sign up for another tour of duty? Maybe another tour of duty in a different role? Or maybe it's time to move on. And let's make that, like, a smooth transition that's transparent and helpful for each other rather than kind of secretly looking for a job and then putting your two weeks and then leaving. Um, so the goal is to create, like, an open and mutual... And, and a very open um, and structured timeline for things to uh, move into the next phase, whatever that is. Um, I stole that idea, the sabbatical idea from HubSpot. <laughs> Second one, radical transparency on the front end of recruiting. This is something I've only done recently because I didn't have the confidence to do it earlier on in my career. Um, I call it putting my worst foot forward. Everyone says put your best foot forward. Put my worst foot forward. Um, Filtering out, I found that filtering out the wrong people in the process is probably just as important or more important than identifying the right one. So I want to like be very upfront. I do this with investors too. Like when I talk, when I talk to them, I'll talk. these are the biggest risks, things keeping me up at night. I'm gonna let you know all the flaws upfront, and then let's let's back into it. Then I'll tell you what the good parts are. But let's get that upfront. So when both when both parties are kind of going into that. Um, into the agreement with a very sober mind and clear eyes, I think it just immediately fil you can immediately filter out the conversations you shouldn't be having and then really affirm the ones you should because the right people, they'll, they'll go right into that and say, okay, tell me more about the hard things you're working with and I want to solve those problems. Um, and depending on stage, it's just a little part of it because we're in this phase right now where we're actually 
shifting from trailblazers to bricklayers. These are kind of how I think about the two stages where you can filter out. Like if you're in a, at a phase that's a startup and you really need the trailblazers, you need to be able to understand that if you bring in bricklayers, they're going to be very frustrated. And bricklayers kind of think about like, no, we are building to scale, building for the long term. And likewise, if you're in a bricklayer phase and you start hiring trailblazers, they're going to blow the thing up and create chaos. Um, so yeah, having those questions up front, like if we're in a startup, saying, hey, we have like a lot to figure out. I might completely change the business model without really much planning in the next three months. Would that be okay with you? <laughs> and some people are going to be like, no, I'm going to go work at Adobe. Um, all right. Um, this one's pretty obvious. It's, it's, it makes sense, but I keep having to remind myself over and over that most people have a motive that's a lot stronger than money, but it's very different for each person. And if you can identify what that is, you can really structure a, either a package for them on the front end or just policies on the back end for the long term that, um, that really help them get what they want that might not be financial. And these are just some of them. And each one, each, you know, like I said, each person has a different one. Um, one of the specific ones that I've learned a lot about is, um, I guess the first one up there, especially on the technical and engineering side, um, learned a lot about hiring like really great developers because I've made a lot of mistakes with it, is that the best developers are so attracted to just the idea of them pushing code and then seeing it impact customers quickly. That's like, it, 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 it's more valuable than money to most developers, that it, or most of the best developers that I talk to. Um, and I didn't really understand that at the time because I, we kind of think of people in these buckets as like, oh, you're an engineer and you're not really thinking about customers or user experience. You're thinking about the code. But that's not the case at all. You know, we, we think both ways. So that's just like one example of that. Um, and oftentimes we use our, our product as, as a way to kind of detect this out. So people that care about people and our products are personality things. So um, it kind of helps determine that. Fourth principle, and how much time do I got, Ben? Two, three minutes. Okay, cool. Um, people want their market value to increase. And that's whether, you, I mean, just like any of us as individuals. But oftentimes, I, th I feel like uh, as a startup executive or a founder, you can look at someone as a dot instead of a line. It's like, I hired this person for this reason, and that's their job. And I'm, gonna pay, I'm paying them to do that job. Meanwhile, they're viewing their life as a line. I'm, I'm trying to increase and go up, increase my value. And that's where you can get the situations where they feel stuck. So understanding ways to help your people increase their own value, I think it's really good. These are a couple of companies that I think do it really well, particularly on like the branding side and the shared network effects, like G2 and Catalyst. I asked them if these, <laughs> I know both of them, I asked if I could use their pictures from the presentation. Um, but their companies have very good employee branding and opportunities for their employees to, to build their own personal brands. And I've seen that really um, become a, become a great way for people to grow alongside their companies. So that's one thing. Something we started to do was just start building those blocks, so give people resources to have on their own personal websites, their own social media, grow alongside the company. And then ultimately what this translates into is well after the employment tenure is tapping into the alumni network because when people are proud of working at your company, even afterwards, you're building this compounding network of people that becomes a recruiting funnel. Um, so part of that is when you part ways, not screwing up and burning bridges unnecessarily. So parting ways gracefully is an art that takes a long time to learn. Um, 
thinking about like writing a whole thing on that specifically because I, I think we focus so much on the hiring and nobody talks about the firing process and that's where everything gets messed up like half the time. A um, couple of ways here, and we're running low on time, but to get that alumni network. We get one minute, all right. Basically sum it up. <laughs> when, you, when you fire people, put more just as much thought into it as when you hire them. <laughs> Asymmetric trade-offs. Um, a couple of, this actually, I'll, I'll finish off here. The, I didn't, our company's like eight years old now, so we've been able to have a couple of these situations where some of our top employees, now about 30% of our employees came from an alumni referral, and we've actually had some boomerang employees come back too. Um, and this is an example of like one of the situations where you know alumni basically goes, finds a great designer at his company, ends up selling it. Now we've got a great designer because he was looking for a place to put her. And then we had one of our first employees come back recently, and he actually referred a couple of other employees. And basically creating that, that alumni um, flywheel is like a great asset that I didn't understand until doing this for a while. So anyway, just a couple steps if you want to take a picture of it before the time's out. And uh, thank you. <laughs>